0: I don't pretend to understand, like, maritime navigation, but I think there is some parallel here, right? It's like you figure out where you are, you take a sounding, you take a reading, whatever the right phrases are, um, a sighting maybe, um, Mm -hmm. and then you figure out the best path forward based on your intentions. But nobody who was navigating a, a, a ship would then say, like, we're sticking to that plan that was made there no matter what happens. Yeah, And if we don't stick to it, it's all been a failure. No, you're using that to navigate in this moment, and then in a new moment, circumstances will be different and you'll have to make a new one.
1: Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good
0: time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor, Tristan Almada. The show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Amada.
1: So I was scrolling through Instagram the other day, and I see this post by a publisher, and it's for a book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I laughed, and then and then I thought, wait a second, I think I want to interview this guy. So guess what? That's who our guest is today. He had an award-winning psychology column in The Guardian for 14 years. He's written three books. And I'm taking a lot of notes on this one. That's why I'm excited to interview this guy. He's funny. He's quick-witted. He's British. He's going back to England soon, as you'll see in the podcast. He mentions that. And help me welcome, this is my first time talking to Oliver, and probably not the last. Here we go. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success podcast. And today, I have Oliver Berkman Oliver dude thank you for jumping on man I, I saw a post on Instagram from your publisher mm-hmm. and it had the cover of your book and I was like this is this is interesting so I dug deeper into it and I, I started reading other things on it, and I was like whoa and I ordered it and then as I was on page like 50 60 I was like I need to, I need to book this guy if he can jump on this is good so welcome
0: Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm um, very happy to come on a podcast and be told nice things about my work.
1: Who, who could complain? <laughs> well, I start with bad things and then I end with terrible ones. So be careful. <laughs> I'm joking, Oliver. It's all good here. But tell me the idea behind writing the book, which is 4,000 Weeks time, man- uh, time Management for Mortals, which is the part that got me. I'm like, I, I like his humor already. <laughs>
0: I mean, what I was trying to do here, I guess, is, I mean, it's two different things. One is, one is it grows out of my own background as a, what I refer to in the book as a productivity geek, Um, constantly obsessed with finding the latest scheduling system or task management system that's finally going to make me able to do everything and be on top of everything and never have to say no to anything and all the rest of it. And then secondly, I just sort of wanted to I wanted to offer a new way of thinking, or it's not new, it's very, very old actually, but I wanted to offer a different way than the prevailing way of thinking about this idea of time management. Because I think to a lot of people, they hear that phrase and it seems very sort of small, you know, it's just a little question of like how you prioritize your next three projects or as I say in the book, you know, it's a good time, you know, cooking all your meals for the week in a big batch on Sundays or something like that. But in a way, like, what are we doing on the planet except time management? Because we have these, this finite amount of time, you can't do everything, you can't even do most things. So we have right. to make some wise choices to build sort of accomplished and enjoyable and meaningful lives. Like that is what life is time management. Um, so, you know, in that subtitle time management for mortals, I hope I'm trying to bring together like a two ideas that don't don't get put together very often,
1: I guess. I like that one. One thing that I want to start with is one question you had towards towards the end of the book, instead of starting at the beginning, only because I felt that that kind of encompassed a lot of a lot of the book and and helps us start in a good way. You asked five questions and I'm not going to go over five of you want to know the five by the book. It's good. Uh, The fifth question is the one I want to ask. And I want to know what your thoughts on it are. You specifically and number five is: How would you spend your days differently if you didn't care so much about seeing your actions reach fruition? And I thought, after after reading, I was telling I was telling Oliver, I, I read almost all the book minus twenty <laughs> pages. Um, but after reading almost all of the book, I felt that that question was so great to ask after going through that and saying, "Whoa, whoa." that's a that encompasses a good portion of what you're talking about because now if i would have asked my question that question first Mm -hmm. i would have come up with a separate answer but now i'm thinking whoa what would oliver's answer be (laughs) so what's your answer to that man
0: i mean i'll I'll totally answer it maybe it's worth just unpacking that question for a minute first for people who are who haven't read the book all the way through to that point i mean what I'm getting at there is that I think we're very locked into this mindset that says the only things worth doing are the things that like, you're around for the results of. So uh, you sort of define what counts as meaningful by whether you are going to end up being the one who uh, builds the company to global stature or whether you're going to be the one who I mean, if you think about it in lots of contexts, it becomes instantly absurd, right? So, parenting is a good example. I've got a four-year-old son. You, you will, uh, in in all but the most tragic cases, you will you, your children will outlive you, and uh, whether they have successful lives, whatever that means, is something that you will not be around for the final judgment of. If you want to zoom out to an even bigger scale. If you're somebody who thinks that it's important to be involved in certain kinds of activism, say climate change is the obvious one. If you want to try to sort of save the world from, from burning down, like you better not think that this is, um, that the, the, the metric here is whether this is all finished in your lifetime, because that's not what that kind of, uh, that kind of undertaking is. And then, you know, just in a more familiar corporate setting, we can see all sorts of great success stories, I think, and in scientific endeavors Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't come to fruition until the people who started work on them had finished. Uh, Novels that weren't fully recognized in their time, but that we now think of as works of genius. And I make the comparison in the book to like, I grew up in York in the north of England, where there's a very beautiful, huge old cathedral called York Minster. Um, Imagine being one of the stonemasons who worked on that. It took like hundreds of years to build that thing it's it it you could not uh you know if you defined as what mattered by totally by seeing the results that would be terrible so for me i mean where does how does this work on my own values and interests i mean firstly it reminds me that in my own role as a father that like i've got a job to do here and a responsibility but it's But it's not the kind where I'm going to be able to, like, at certain points say, "Okay, job done. I did the right things um, because it's just not how how things go. It's interesting in the context of this book, you know, because uh, I wrote this book because I care about the subject matter. And I had been through a lot of the struggle with this stuff. And I thought I had something useful to pass along to other people. Mm -hmm. When you get to the launch of a book, it's very easy to get into this mindset of like, what counts is how many copies it sells in the next month. (laughs) yes, I was going to ask you that. And I've been very fortunate so far. It has exceeded my expectations in the number of copies that it has sold. So this is brilliant. But really, truly, it would be, I think, I think it's useful for me to remember that that is not the ultimate mark of whether something makes a useful contribution to the world, Um, and that if this book sort of um, bubbles through various different people and gets past the word of mouth, firstly, it might be after I'm gone, I suppose, but also it might just be in parts of the world where I'm never going to know about it, right? I mean, somebody's going to, I hope, recommend it to somebody else, and I'll never know that. Now, if I say it only counts if I get to be like, I see all these results, then something is missing there because it's actually really nice to know that you might have started these conversations. So it's useful, actually, for you to remind me of this right now, because right in the middle of a book launch, it's extremely easy to go straight into like, what are the numbers, what are the numbers, what are the numbers, you know, um, what's that's my Amazon what ranking? You know. That's
1: what you get from everybody else around you, right? right. So, yeah. Uh,
0: and I don't think that's bad, right? I'm not saying you should only you should not care about seeing like Launching a business and seeing it come through to profit, or mm. writing a book and seeing it get into the hands of a bunch of people. It's just that you don't want to make that the only criterion for whether something's worth doing.
1: That's true, man. That's true. And look, in the book you mentioned that uh, I think I wrote this down because I wanted to ask you. Richard Bach said, you teach best what you most need to learn. <laughs> and I thought, because you were you were reflecting on why you're writing this book too. And I think this is so cool because that's that's very true about the things that we we really dive deeper if we want to get better at it. We're like, wow, well, maybe we should learn more about this. And then you become the teacher. So one right. thing I didn't anticipate when I was reading this book, I honestly I thought you were going to be like, all right. Here's what you do from 9 to 11, <laughs> right? That's what yeah. I thought it was going to be. It's a bait and switch. The title of a bait and switch. You totally like, screwed yeah, that yeah, up, yeah. Oliver. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was very philosophical. I, I thought of you as a philosopher after, by the way. I'm and I was like... Flattered. Dude, this is, this is good. Uh, and you bring up uh, the Pomodoro technique, which is like 25 minutes of work, five minutes of rest, and all that good stuff. Can you go a little bit... Into that, because we, we come from the business world. Entrepreneurs, solopreneurs are listening to this. What is that method and what do you think of it?
0: Well, the Pomodoro technique, very simply, is there's a whole, there's a deeper way you can go with it, but it's basically just this idea of working in 25 minute bursts with a five minute break and then a longer break after four of those uh, you've done them. Now, I'm a little bit rude about it in the book, but I want to be clear I don't think those kind of techniques are like bad. I don't think that there's something wrong about using them and I, in fact I have sort of started experimenting again with the pomodoro technique just in recent in recent weeks. I think the problem is the mindset that we tend to bring to them. Mm. It's this feeling that we're going to use them and they're going to like enable us to achieve this kind of total control over our lives and our time. We're going to use them to sort of force our way through into this position where we're sort of perfectly optimized, we can stay on top of all our email, all our obligations, but also all our ambitions, just do everything. And, and so we use them to try to kind of get one over on time, really, or to sort of gain a gain an edge over time. And I think that is a goal that is like, destined to disappointment, because time is always going to win. And because like, the more you manage to cram into your day, for various different reasons we can talk about, but the more extra stuff you'll then feel you have to try to cram into your day. So it's like a treadmill. Um, you can't ever. Uh, what this book is against, I think, is a, I think this is a manifesto about saying, like, you're not ever going to feel like you're the master of your time. You're not ever going to feel like you're in control of your time. And part of that is because we live in a world now of infinite inputs, right? Mm-hmm. There is an infinite number of emails you could receive. If you're in a traditional job, there's an infinite number of demands your boss could make. If you're a sort of entrepreneurial person, there's an infinite number of businesses you might want to launch or aspects you might want to work on in your business. And we're finite humans, so it's just math, right? I mean, you can't do an impossible amount of things with a finite resource. Uh, Now, then sometimes people misinterpret this as a kind of despairing, kind of like, so just give up. Like, life sucks. There's no point trying to do cool stuff. But I hope that what comes mm. from reading the book is that um it's the exact opposite, right? It's it's precisely when we can let ourselves stop trying to do this impossible thing of becoming perfectly uh, able to do everything, perfectly efficient, all the rest of it. It's once you drop that fight that you have the attention and the resources and the time to focus on a few important things that count and to do them instead of being like, Oh, next month I'm going to be in control of my time and then I'll launch that cool project. You know? So it's like, it's in, it's in favor of doing cool stuff instead of it's in favor of doing some meaningful things now, instead of always
1: chasing this perfect situation that never arrives. And and it never will, man. So I I love that about the book. I have a question that why do you think, why do you think that most people feel accomplished temporarily when they, when they just check off a whole bunch of stuff? Like, okay, you know what? Check, check, check. Ooh, today was great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I know it. Me too. You know, know. I'm not, I'm not immune to any of this. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, I think there's a strong, uh, I mean, it's partly it's societal and economic. It's not all individual, but like we feel this kind of really strong, uh, bias in favor of just like, Doing stuff, and a lot of product. So the worst kind of productivity uh, advice, not all of it, um, is just about like how to do more stuff, without asking whether there's any point in doing that stuff, or whether there might be, you know, it might make more sense to do fewer, uh, I guess, less stuff, um, but but different stuff. So, you know, uh, I think that's really easy to confuse, isn't it? You sort of People of a certain personality, probably a lot of people who um, are listening and watching this, they like they're self-starters. They they feel like doing stuff and not having to be told to do it, but just doing stuff off their own initiative is good. And it is. Yeah. But then you're liable to like get to the end of the day and collapse on the couch and be like, "Wow, I really undertook a lot of activity today," but like. It's not necessarily a good thing. It depends on what it was, right? Yeah. And so we sort of confuse that virtuous, tired feeling of like, Oof, I really, uh, you know, um, crossed off items <laughs> with, with the question of whether it was something worth doing. And it might be on a given day that doing two or three specific important things and then like getting up from your desk at 2 p.m. and spending the rest of the day... Um, here in Brooklyn, I want to say in the park, but where you are, I might say on the beach. Um, that might be the best thing for your work, apart from being enjoyable. But like That might actually literally serve your business or your output better um, than, than the full, just as much so, volume as possible approach. You know?
1: So why do you think we place so much importance on the idea of getting things... The, the more things mm-hmm. we get done the more productive we are, where, where does that stem from? And why do we place m- so much importance in that?
0: I think you can answer that on different levels. You could do a whole, like it's capitalism <laughs> answer. Yeah. Um, you could do a whole thing about the sort of remaining ethos that there is in a lot of countries in the West of a kind of, there's a certain kind of religious um, focus on hard work at the very bottom of it and certainly in in my case get looking back at my life i think a lot of us feel like we have to kind of justify our existence on the planet right mm. that we sort of i mean i've said it in this these terms before like it's like we get up in the morning and we're in a kind of we feel that we're in a kind of productivity debt mm-hmm. like we have to pay off our productivity and just to get back to a zero balance yeah um which you know if if you earn, a, if you get a salary from a company, you sort of are in a productivity debt in a sense. But this existential point I'm trying to make is more like you know, you feel like, are you even allowed to be here if you're not,
1: um, mm-hmm. if
0: you're not sort of producing stuff? And I think you know, it's very understandable why so many people feel this way. But I do think it's um, possible to see that a sort of healthier way to think is like, okay what if you don't need to do anything to justify your existence, but, uh, but the things you do for your business or for your work are just an expression of, you know, your creativity and your energy and your interest rather than that. You're always trying to like reach some, uh, some bar. If you, if you see what I mean, does that make you sense?
1: It, I, I understand it, man. And I think it's, it's like you said about the, the Pomodoro technique. It's a mindset you bring to, to everything that you're taking on. So, then my question is, how do you identify what should be your priority? What should be of most importance to you as a human, mm-hmm. right? How, how yeah. do you determine that?
0: So that's that's the, the, whatever the phrase is, million dollar, 64 billion dollar question. That's your, um, next, that's your next book right there. <laughs> right, right. And one thing no. I really actually, and this is an interesting point, actually, I haven't been asked about it so much. One thing I really wanted to avoid in this book was doing like the laundry list. Doing the thing where you say like, here are the things you should be spending your life on, um, you know, family, uh, being in nature, uh, mm-hmm. whatever. For two reasons. I mean, one is I'm not sure I have a better sense of that than anyone else, or that certainly I might have one that's personal to me, but it might not be relevant to others. Mm-hmm. Secondly, like I think people, I think people kind of know when they not all at once. I don't mean that you can sort of sit down and on a piece of paper, just write out everything you ought to be doing with your life. But I think people have a a general intuitive sense that the work they're doing matters to them in a deep way, or it doesn't, that a relationship they're in is like, really significant and worth working through the tough times, or it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in a way, I hope that one effect of this book might be that you sort of if I can help people see through certain false impressions that we have about what life and work is all about, like trying to Mm -hmm. become the total master of your time and become hyper-optimized and super-efficient, I think that those other questions may be sort of, they resolve themselves a little bit. I don't mean necessarily that you suddenly change and walk out of your job or your marriage or anything. It can all be sort of trial and error. But, um... You know, it's just sort of it it enables you to be a bit more open to um, something that's going on beyond beyond your conscious mind. I think, which is this general feeling that people have of like what would be a fruitful direction for me and and what wouldn't. So I'm sort of refusing to answer that question in a way. No, well, actually, (laughs) you
1: you kind of did with what you said because when we're towards the end of the book, you mentioned that when we come when we get to the point where we start being more. understanding of what we're actually doing, like our activities, and we're present in what we're doing, right, all of a sudden, we start seeing things change, right? And so you do answer it in the book, and you did take that route. And I think that that's important to note, because so often we, we do things just to do things, and we're not, mm-hmm. we're not involved. It's kind of like when people tell you to, to just shut up and listen, because, most people are, are thinking about what they're going to say next. Uh-huh. Right. And so that's what I was thinking of when I was reading that. I'm like, that, that is something we can all learn from at all levels, regardless if we're solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, parents, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever. And I, I thought that was really important because the, 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 the things you brought up here, and there was one. There was that professor you talked about, I don't remember her name, is it Jennifer Roberts, Harvard? Oh, the patients, yes, yes, the uh, <laughs> art historian lady, yep, yep, yep. Tell me that story because I thought, you know what, that seemed incredible, that would slow everybody down. <laughs> right. So
0: she's great, she's, a, she's an art historian at, uh, at Harvard and she has this exercise that she gives to all her new students where they have to choose a painting or a sculpture at one of the Cambridge, Boston, uh, you know, many museums and art galleries, and go and, and go and look at it for three hours. I think you're allowed to take bathroom breaks, but other than that, three hours. And um, she knows that it's a crazy amount of time to to go and look at a painting. And I did this. I went and did. I went to met her and interviewed her, and then I went to look at a painting for three hours in the Harvard Art uh, Museum. Uh, but her, her thinking here is that you know we live in this. <clears throat> incredibly accelerated culture technology accelerates the culture competition and economic competitiveness accelerates the culture um and she felt that she had to sort of not only teach her students some stuff about art but actually teach them how to see art again by by obliging them to sort of uh slow down and not assume that because you've looked at a a painting for two seconds that you've seen it. Deeply, Mm -hmm. and her experience of this, and mine as well, it's quite freaky. But like, what happens is you sort of spend the first hour dealing with this ridiculous scenario where you're sitting watching a painting for three hours, right? You sort of you feel uncomfortable, you wriggle, you try to think. You think, oh, should I change paintings? Like, oh, I wish I hadn't (laughs) done this. This is so stupid. And then on the other side of that discomfort, you do literally start to see things in a painting, in a good painting that you had not seen. Like, uh, it's not a a metaphor. It's like, I was looking at a painting, don't get into details, I was looking at a painting that has apparently three people in it. After Mm -hmm. an hour, I realized that there was a shadow in this painting that meant there were probably four people in it. I mean, this is crazy, right? It's just like, it's a new level of knowledge of the world that comes from not rushing things faster than they need to take. And the obvious question for most people is going to be, okay, but I don't really care about Art history and paintings. What's the relevance of this point beyond that? And I think the relevance is that there are all sorts of activities on every scale, like things we do within a day, things over a course of a of a year, that that take the time they take. They have a kind of built in time that they need. And um, uh, reading is another very good example, right? People people increasingly find it hard, I think, to focus on reading a book because we live in a world where lots of other kinds of information come to us. So, so instantaneously. And, and it's, it's uncomfortable because you need to feel that, that desire to wriggle off and do something else. And you need to sort of stay with it instead of, Mm -hmm. uh, acting on it. But the end result is that you, you reach new levels of creativity and knowledge and, you know, this I, I could imagine that also applying. You tell me if this feels relevant to, uh, you know, solopreneurs and entrepreneurs. But it I could f- imagine this playing a role in terms of knowing when to wait for results, when to keep going through the dip in the middle or whatever of a project that doesn't seem like it like it works yet, because like you don't get to force how reality goes, right? Like you get to you get to play with reality, but you don't get to like set the rules of how the rest of reality is, is going to unfold
1: that's true man i think the one thing that whole section reminded me of that story was uh, have you ever read or heard of built to last by jim collins and jerry i forgot his last name was jim collins yeah so yep. built to last great book a lot of big companies use it but in it he mentions that a lot of these great companies, their ability to adapt because they're listening and paying attention to where the world is heading for for their specific world, right? And he gives an example of how American Express shifted from delivering parcels to all of a sudden doing credit cards, like plastic Hmm. cards, right?
0: I didn't know they used to deliver parcels, right? Yeah, it's crazy. yeah, Yeah.
1: So that shift happened because they were able to pay attention to what's happening. And a lot of the times, just us humans, we're so focused on the rest of it and moving just fast in the mm-hmm. world that we're in that we miss, like you said, the shadow of the painting yeah, where we could have gone deeper. And that's what I was I was learning that when I was reading your book, I was like, man, that that can really apply to to every aspect of being human, whether it's actually being human, running a business, running a family, right? Self-mastery, whatever whatever it is, we need to really slow down. And the first thing I thought of was, all right, so you're telling me I need to slow down and smell the roses, Oliver? What's going on here? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I have mixed feelings about that kind of slowing down. Um, I can yeah. talk about them if you want.
1: Yeah, man, tell me about that because that that's the first thing I thought of. Right. right, yeah,
0: no, no, and I'm aware that like that is where this goes usually, right? And I mean, I, I've got a whole bit in there about like, yeah, we don't want to just live for the future. We don't want to just try to hurry things up. But living in the moment is pretty hard too uh, when you try to do it. Like um, when you sort of, when you really put effort into attempting to be present, it's almost paradoxical because you're like sort of, am I present in the moment enough? Am I present in the moment? And then you sort of aren't, present in the moment anymore so I and I and I write about this sort of embarrassing experience I had when I was in the far north of Canada um and uh finally saw the northern lights after many nights of waiting to see them and was sort of dragged out of my cabin at the bed and breakfast by some people in the adjoining cabin because the northern lights were were happening and um and really trying to sort of be there in the moment hmm. And sort of failing and having this thought in the middle of all this, this amazing natural phenomenon, having the thought, oh, it looks like a screensaver, <laughs> which is like, talk about, talk about, talk about removing the romance <laughs> and the wonder from an experience. And I think, you know, it's just this, exa- we, we, I don't think the way to be in the moment is to be like, okay, I'm gonna really ex- enjoy this experience. I think it's just something again, that you sort of, that you fall into. When you realize that like, I mean, the other way of thinking about it is like, we always are in the moment. Mm You can't get out of it. So it's not really about whether you're more present in life. It's about whether you see the truth of the situation, which is that planning for the future happens now and preparing for the future happens now and worrying about the future happens now. It's all happening now in this moment. Um, And yeah, I think if you're living a life where all the value is going to be later, or when you get to retire early, or something like that, you're missing, you're missing out. Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't prepare for the future. It just means that, like if that's where all your, uh, it, it, it's where your, it, it, if all the value of your life is coming later, then well, you said, you'll never get there.
1: Yeah. You said one thing here, I wrote it down, it says a plan is a present moment of intent. And I thought that would, yeah. that's so, that's so good. I, I need to remember that because all, all this planning that we're doing is great. Right. But that's, that's from the knowledge that we have right now. It doesn't mean we're going to get there. And then right. the challenge is that we hold ourselves to this, that present moment of intent. And then all of a sudden we start basing everything off of that. And that right. becomes a challenge, because, and that's where that's where you you wrote this, and this was important because we all feel this. Our anxiety stems from our feeling that our efforts will bring success. Right. This is why we have to make peace with uncertainty. I wrote um, because we don't know, well, we don't know. And dude, that right. was that was so beautifully written. That was awesome. So congrats well, on that. Thank Just, you. Thank that thank line you alone much. was like, damn. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm glad to hear it. I mean, yeah, I think all all this is is like I don't I don't pretend to understand like maritime navigation, but I think there is some parallel here, right? It's like you figure out where you are, you take a sounding, you take a reading, whatever the right phrases are, um, a sighting maybe, um, mm-hmm. and then you figure out the best path forward based on your intentions. But nobody who was navigating a, a, a ship would then say like we're sticking to that plan that was made there, no matter what happens. Yeah. And if we don't stick to it, it's all been a failure. No, you're using that to navigate in this moment. And then in a new moment, circumstances will be different and you'll have to make a new one. So I'm not like against planning, really. It's just that you have to see plans for what they are, which is like... Ever-changing. Yeah. And you orienting yourself right now in what seems like the most sensible way, rather than Mm. this kind of... Attempt to dictate the future, which will then just cause massive frustration when the future decides to do something else.
1: When I was reading that part, and then I want you to tell me the the story about Steve Young, because that was so clear if if you remember the Steve oh, Young. Oh yeah,
0: Shenzhen, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. yeah. But
1: first I wanna I wanna say that when I was reading this section about anxiety and and the feeling that our efforts will bring success. I was thinking of COVID, right? Cause we just, we're like still in the middle of it. And I thought, is this, is it, this is a, this is a possible great explanation to why a lot of people get so much anxiety when it comes to the inability to control what's happening next. Right, right. right, right. And I thought, damn, all these people versus all these other people, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mass, no mass, vaccine, no vaccine, right? right. And it's like it's tearing our 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 current world apart in some places. Yeah, so, yeah. that's a really interesting. Inter-
0: yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think if you look at, I think there's a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of behaviour that's d- d- designed ultimately to, to to assuage anxiety on both sides of yeah. the thing. So you know, people who want to people who want to believe that with enough care and masking and distance they can make this thing completely go away and people who are so horrified at the idea of confronting the fact that it's real that they want to start making up conspiracy theories about how it isn't real you know like so both sides of that continuum everyone and you know all of us in lots of different ways all the time right are Mm -hmm. are just trying to make ourselves feel less anxious about the fact that we have like none of us know what's coming in the next minute you just don't ever
1: (laughs) That's so true, man. When this all went down and you reminded me of, um, have you ever read E-Myth or E-Myth Revisited? I have a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the author's a friend of mine. So as soon as this went down, I texted, he was one of the people I texted. I was like, yo, you have five minutes. I want to know your thoughts on on this and what the hell are you going to do? Um, (laughs) And so he said, yeah, call me. So he was one of the first I called and he said, Tristan what made you think that you knew what was going to happen the next day in the first place <laughs> I was like oh, okay okay I felt like an idiot I was like you're right you're right I'm sorry right. yeah <laughs> so that gave me the yep. perspective I needed on the first day right <laughs> What well, we thought it was the first day but tell me the story about Steve Young because that put a lot of the book in perspective for me oh interesting
0: he well he is um uh it's funny to think of him as called Steve Young because his name now famously is Shinzen Young, and he's a meditation teacher, a sort of very prominent and uh, uh, I think great uh, meditation teacher of meditation. But he had this experience that he wrote about and talked to me about, where when he was first training to become a monk, I mean, he's not a monk now, but when he was first trained to become a monk in a branch of Buddhism in um, in Japan, he um, had to do this ritual where he like had to live in the mountains on his own and dump iced water over his own naked body three times a day as part of a sort of, you know, initiation ritual into this tradition. Don't need to worry about the details there. But the point (laughs) is, the point about what he realized in that process was that, you know, You might think that when something horrible like that was happening to you, that the more you could distract yourself, the happier you'd be. And if you could sort of tip that iced water on top of yourself while thinking about some TV show you liked or something, it might be a bit less bad than if you were really sort of fully present to the feeling of the freezing water. But he realized as he continued doing this exercise day after day that it was the opposite, that... um, trying to run away from this, sort of mentally run away from, I guess, this feeling made it worse because he was sort of fighting reality and paying more attention to it made it less bad. And when and, and so it was actually a sort of, it was actually a mechanism on, I mean, I don't think the monks would have talked about it like this, but it was actually a device that they had created to enhance your concentration because... The more concentrated you are on the feelings, the mm-hmm. less horrible they are. Another way of thinking about this that a, another meditation teacher friend of mine puts it is that, like, you have a limited amount of attention, and if you're really putting it all onto what's happening in the moment, then you've got none left to put onto like complaining about what's ah. happening in the moment, right? So you can't really suffer. You can certainly feel pain, but you can't like suffer in that particular psychological way. It's a good one. If if you're focused on
1: what's going on dude that that's really good and and i want to get into distraction in a little bit but first that story and what you just told me reminded me while you were talking about a different section when you mentioned that anxiety goes away when you finally decide to move forward with something and and you you mentioned relationships you mentioned just different things that when you fully commit yourself to it and you know there's no way back Mm-hmm. Right. All of a sudden, it starts working.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> this is yeah. Again, I think what yes, this is. I. It's so interesting, and it's true to so many people's experience, isn't it? I think like you keeping your options open feels like the way to stay in control. Because yes, um, all the time. Like, right. Because you're like, hey, I'm doing this, but any moment I chose, I could go and do something else, and so I'm the one in control. But but as they've found in many psychological studies now, and in I think you don't even need those studies necessarily to prove it. Um, People are much happier on average when they can't back out of a decision because you're no longer tormented by this, like, oh, should I switch? Should I do something different? It's like, nope, too late now. Um, And so I've had this experience, I mean, in many different contexts, but one that springs to mind is, like, I left, I was on the staff of a newspaper and I decided to leave the staff because... um, and go freelance because I would be able to do more things that I wanted, but I would be trading security. I carried on working for them in various different ways, but like I would be trading security or what felt like security. Uh, it's mm-hmm. funny to think about jobs on newspapers being a source of security, isn't it? But, uh, <laughs> That's um, a different world. Man. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, anyway. And so my, and so I was sort of, I was ambivalent about whether to do it. Is it worth the trade? And of course, once you have decided to do it, it's too late. Can't go back pretty much. Then it's great because you just get down to business and you start building the new thing and you have a sort of, um, unity of focus on the new thing now because, uh, there's nothing else to be worried about. And that's why, you know, I think, um, I, I don't have any real personal experience of, uh, online dating just because of, by chance in terms of when I met my wife and things like that, but I, Mm -hmm. I, I get the sense from people who have a lot of experience of online dating that there's a huge downside to this sort of thought in the back of your mind that whoever you're meeting right now or having a drink with or messaging online, there is a theoretical hundred thousand other people. Now, actually, in reality, they might not want to have anything to do with you, of course, but (laughs) in principle... Hundred thousand other people who uh, might be better, you know. That's that's a that's a torment. That's not like um, that's not a wonderful thing. That's a that's, that's true, a, a, a bad thing.
1: You know, I I didn't understand that fully until I read it in your book because i heard it for years from Tony Robbins. He always says, "Just burn your boat, burn your boat, right. burn your boat." And I under, I mean, I understand what "burn your boat" means. But I understood it deeper after I read your section. I was like, oh, because you build up to it. It's not just like, hey, bring your boat. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, here's, here's what it looks like. Right. And I thought, whoa, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And in regards to that, are you saying that, and this is just for my understanding, mm-hmm. when it comes to doing something over here and not sure that you want to do something over here should is it okay in in the study that you did here to be able to hold on to something and say maybe I can go back to that is, is there ever a time that you should be doing that because remember we're we're, we're talking to business people who are like hmm. maybe I'll hold on to that part-time job or or maybe I'll I'll do this maybe I'll keep this open over here and not fully be committed to this one thing. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, because I don't, yeah, now, when you
0: put it like that, you sort of, you don't want to say, like, just, like, just stride forward, alienating all the people you used to work with for the hell of it, you know. Um, I think, again, it's probably a case, as we were talking before about Mm. um, uh, different time management techniques, things like that. It's this, it's a question of why you're doing something. So like I think if you you can sort of make an honest assessment of the situation and say, you know what, actually, my best read of the situation, talking to people, looking at the lay of the land, my best read of it is that it does make sense for a bit longer to keep this other job while I do this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just a sensible uh, assessment of the costs and benefits. I I wouldn't want to get in the way of that. I think that's probably great if you're if you're doing it just because the thought of taking the leap makes you anxious yeah. and not making the leap makes you continue to sort of feel a certain kind of warm sense of like i'm i'm in the driver's seat here mm-hmm. then that would be more of a warning sign i think because you're then yeah. you're sort of getting at the emotional agenda um there are other kinds of people, right? I'm talking mainly to people who I think are more, uh, the more normal kind of person and, and I'm certainly one of them who kind of want to feel in control and are scared of making big jumps. You do get the other kind of person who's like super impulsive and who has a big emotional reason for reasons rooted in their childhood probably to like to like always be taking dumb risks. And that person, yeah. you know, needs to look in the other direction and say, well, <laughs> what is it serving in me yeah. to always feel like uh, I'm totally unpredictable and nobody can tell whether I'm going to like, uh, you know, um, destroy everything I've built on a moment's notice.
1: They need to read um, a different yeah, yeah. book. Oliver, yeah, then.
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: this isn't for them. <laughs> all right. So I had a question because you bring up Parkinson's law, which in essence is like, hey, you're going to take up all the time you need to finish that project. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and not a minute too soon or later. And that's definitely the case. I see it, and then you bring up this law that I'd never heard of before, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this guy's name right. But it's Hofstadter's law. Hofstadter, yeah, 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 you got it right. Tell me about Hofstadter's law and and how you compare both because I saw some similarities and then some differences. I'm like, okay, yeah. I mean,
0: both of them are kind of jokes, right? So they're oh. they're true jokes. They get at something very real in life, but I they're not sort of laws in a, a physicist would object to calling. Them laws. Um so so Parkinson's law is that the work there's that work expands to fill the time available to its for its completion. If you if you mark off six hours for a project, you might get it done. But if you mark off ten hours, you'll take the ten hours to to get it done. And uh, sort of additional to that is the kind of phenomenon where that I call the efficiency trap, where if you get very good at doing stuff quickly you sort of attract more volume into the system. So, if you get really good at processing your email, you're going to get more email, and la la la. So that's a sort of that's the sort of older idea about how time can't be managed in the way that we think it can be managed, because because the stuff that fills it will be sort of beyond our control. Hofstadter's law is funny because it's. Uh, it's deliberately self-referential. Hofstadter's law states that um, anything, will, projects, whatever, will always take longer to complete than you predict, even when Hofstadter's law is taken into account. So it's the law that mentions itself in its definition. Um, and Hofstadter, who's a computer scientist, Douglas Hofstadter, was sort of having a, was having, playing a joke here. But what he means is, like, things take longer than you can predict, even when you realize that they take longer than you can predict and you try to build that in <laughs> to your prediction, That's right? True. So it's a kind of, he's sort of throwing up his hands in a way and saying, like, if you think it takes you, if it takes you two hours to write, I don't know, some particular blog post and you know that it never takes you two hours, you know that it takes you longer. So you give yourself four hours. Well, then it's going to take you six hours because like that you're in this sort of ridiculous <laughs> situation where however much you try to build in The the planning fallacy, the fact that we can't properly, the fact that we're very bad at at, at, um, predicting how long things are going to take. It's not just that we're bad at predicting how long things are going to take. It's that even when you know that you're bad at predicting how long things are going to take and you try to build that in to your predictions, you'll still be bad at uh, planning how long they're going to take. So anyway. I like that. (laughs) It is a sort of,
1: yeah, go on. Which will go into distractions, and I want to talk about that for a minute or two. Mm -hmm. Because the one thing that stood out to me was like, whoa, 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 uh, I'm not seeing now distractions as I was seeing them before. You're telling me, and and the readers, distractions are okay, and it's part of life, and here's why. Uh, Can you touch on that for a minute or two?
0: Yeah, I guess I am saying that. I don't know. I think I'm saying, I mean... I think I'm making sort of two big points about distraction. One is that in a sense, you're always being distracted from something to do something else, right? Because we're finite, because every choice to do something is a choice not to do a thousand other things. Excuse me. Um, So there's always something that you probably should be giving your attention to according to some, uh, someone or, but, but you're not. And that's just baked into being human. So, Don't worry about that in itself, and just make sure that you're doing your best to choose the right things to give your focus to. And then the other thing is that, like, when we do when we do give in to the kind of distraction that we kind of dislike ourselves for, right? When you sort of do end up spending an hour on social media that you didn't mean to spend, or or you end up sort of surfing the web pointlessly, reading like uh, celebrity gossip websites when you had another plan. We're going on TikTok right whatever i haven't haven't really dipped my toe in there yet because it's like don't, no i'm not don't. i'm not going to try that addictive do drug it as easy. well there's have got too many of them already yeah it's like yeah um uh that you um that we give we give into that sort of willingly we we're not really being like i mean it, we talk as if silicon valley comes and like grabs us and pulls us away into these social media spaces. And I think Silicon Valley does have a lot to answer for, actually, but it's kind of a separate question because it's not like we dragged kicking and screaming. It's Mm like I'm sitting there trying to write something difficult, and then the thought comes like, oh, I wonder what's happening on Twitter. That's a huge relief. I get to like run away to Twitter. I'm like, oh my goodness, now I don't have to feel the discomfort of working on that writing. I can just bathe in the stupid arguments uh, that people are having. On, on Twitter. So I just wanted to sort of underline in the book this idea that like we have an urge to distract ourselves. It's not just that other things in the external world uh, succeed in, in uh, distracting us. And that is very useful when it comes to learning to get better at not Giving your attention to things you don't really care about because you need to start with the truth, which is like part of you doesn't want to work on your business or your book or the difficult conversation with your wife or husband or whatever you know. Part of you knows that this is important, but is like, oh, I'd far rather just be on TikTok, you know. So,
1: well, I think that's where it starts to Understanding that that distraction is going to be there and that you become aware of it, right? <laughs> and what can you do about it? So, I loved, I loved going there. And last question for you, man, but. What do you think of routines in general to guide you better? Is that something that you're, because you mentioned at the beginning, you're re now assessing Pomodoro's technique and saying maybe there's something here to it. What are your thoughts on routines in general to help guide you to reach or stick to those priorities that you hold dear?
0: Again, I'm going to say, but I think it's worth saying again, you know, it's to do with that. What you're expecting from them and the attitude that you're bringing to them. So, like, I think a, I have an a, I have certain aspects of my routine that I try to stick with. I totally am not sort of anti-routines, but I think that the daily routine and the sort of especially the sort of perfect morning routine is something that you see people getting fixated on in a way that is not actually helping them. It, it, it's it's fueling this idea that one day soon they're going to have their sort of period from 5am to 7am, perfectly choreographed. And then apart from anything else, you know, the, the first day you accidentally sleep in or don't feel like, uh, doing the workout at 5.30 or whatever, it feels like a huge failure. And that's a pity if like actually the last 10 days you did it because that should be a success. Um, so one of the things there that I'm really uh, into is, um, there's a a ABC newscaster and meditation teacher called Dan Harris. I don't know if you've come across his stuff. Uh yep. And um, he has this great recommendation. He's talking about meditation, but I think it applies to any good habit you want to learn that you should aim to do it dailyish. Um. So you know, we all know that if you're trying to do something dailyish and you only do it three days a week, like you didn't do it dailyish. So it's not. It's not like just whenever you
1: feel like it. It's like um, my friend says he's jewish
0: right right yeah exactly that's funny yeah me too actually um (laughs) but but yeah so if you if if you um but if you resolve to do something daily-ish you know that you probably do have to do it like i don't know five days a week most weeks maybe four sometimes six or seven on the really good weeks and it there's a certain kind of um there's a sort of uh it's kind of anti-fragile to use Nassim Taleb's words right it's not it's not this kind of brittle system that uh breaks the moment you um Mm. fail it's actually a sort of you know you get better at doing it through the fact that it's got this sort of built-in resilience um it's not quite what Nassim Taleb means by anti-fragile actually but never mind the basic point like come up with routines that fit reality and then do them instead of these routines that are only going to really work one day out of 25 and then you don't do them. And the best routine in the world is not worth anything if you're not actually doing it. So.
1: That's right, man. That's right. <laughs> I like that. So far right. better to have
0: a sort of mediocre routine that you really do. Uh, it's like they say an exercise, right? I mean, like what, 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 what's, what kind of exercise should you, is the best to do and the answer is it's the, the one that you do
1: um, and and to say what you said it's the it's the attitude you bring to it the mindset right, right. you bring to it so yeah, I love it Oliver that was a good conversation man I loved it so, I'm glad me too yeah I'm gonna put this this as a book that I love so just heads up on that I'm gonna, I'll blast it out to a few people too Thank and uh, thanks for being on I appreciate it
0: my pleasure thanks for the great questions Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.